listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. All right, Jeff. So last time we talked, I promised not to tell our listeners where we were going today, but I suppose I do need to tell them now. Otherwise, they're not going to want to listen. Well, I don't know where we tell them we're going and where we go. <laughs> it's not always the same anyway, yeah, not the same which thing. is why we do these, right? Because yeah. you and I just have a conversation about stuff. So we should have called we should have called this running without a GPS. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I reflected on what we talked about, and there was just so many different models that sort of came out of your thinking around intellectual capital that I really, really like. In fact, I've got that same sketch in front of, well, full disclosure, it's a second sketch. I lost the first sketch and I had to recreate it, but so I have this sketch in front of me. And the part that jumped out to me that I want to narrow in on today is you have this really great sequence of thinking where you talk about how you know a lot of intellectual capital has been all about demand generation, all about problem definition, but buyers are overwhelmed. And really, there's an opportunity with intellectual capital to inform the seller and the buyer at that space between consideration and choice where a big difference can happen in outcomes. And then you went on to talk about this notion of the buyer's journey and how you always like to look at the buyer's journey and identify points of friction. And so what I want to talk about today is this concept of points of friction, because this is something that you and I have talked about a couple of times with clients together. And I want to talk more about it because I actually think that that's a really different way of looking at intellectual capital. So I want to go there today. Any friction? (laughs) None. None. Well, I shouldn't say that. Dragging you along builds a little friction, but. uh. (laughs) Yes. Slow (laughs) introduces sand into the gears very quickly, right? Oh, gosh. I just had that image of the vacation movie and the dog tied to the bumper. What a horrific scene, which makes me think of tying grandma to the roof of the station wagon, which is even more horrific. (laughs) All right. Well, before we we digress. (laughs) So talk to us about points of friction. When when you use that phrase, and again, just to set context for people, if they didn't, you know, if they don't remember the last episode or whatever, this notion of points of friction is that the friction in the buyer's journey. What do you mean by that? It's a great question. It's probably a, a great place to get started. This would probably be one of those areas that we would add to a podcast on how marketing ruins everything. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually wrote a blog on the buyer's journey and and cover friction in that. I think it's an incredible concept and it's very simple and illustrative of what I think is really going on. And this goes back, you know, to one of our heroes in in David Meister and his book, How to Manage the Professional Services Firm, and that chapter about how clients choose. And this was before all this content marketing noise and technology that we have today. So to me, the concept of friction by any name is always relevant and always has been. And I define friction as those things, and things can be many different things, that get in the way of our ideal client buying our solution. 
And I don't care if you're selling accounting services or strategy or IT or your SaaS company, there's something always in the way of your ideal client getting to the point of buying your solution, however you define solution. And that friction is different at each stage of the buying cycle because what the buyer is trying to achieve at each stage of the buying cycle is different. Therefore, what's blocking it is different. And I think it's particularly relevant as it relates to intellectual capital strategy because most firms, and, and, and again, it doesn't matter what type of solution you're selling, gear most, if not all, of their intellectual capital, thought leadership, content, whatever you would say, on the front end in problem identification, you know, demand generation, making people aware that they actually have a problem and helping them define what that problem is. But the one thing about content marketing, and you alluded to this, everybody knows what the problem is, more or less, because there's so much noise around it. But what we've seen at Prudent Pedal, you've seen it at Rattleback, you've definitely seen it in the research that came out of Profiting from Thought Leadership, where firms that really drive growth and differentiate themselves, and, and it's the whole point of this intellectual capital series, is how do you take it all the way down to, to sales? And, and the way you do it is identifying you know, those areas of friction. Right, let's look at some examples. When we say friction in a very practical way, what are some examples of friction that a buyer experiences in their journey? All right. So I love the way you set that up, Jason. Have you ever thought about maybe throwing your hat in a ring for some evening talk show or something? <laughs> I mean, seriously. <laughs> you, well, you underrate yourself, but man. As, as the great David Letterman says, key comedy is repetition, right? So. <laughs> Well, keep doing what you're doing. And it's funny that you say that because that was the thing I hated about David Letterman. <laughs> and that's among the many things that you and I will always disagree on. Yeah. So the first thing that I need to point out is the friction that exists from a buyer's perspective may be different than the friction that is experienced from the seller's perspective. And again, this, this kind of goes back to that Helix conversation we had where these things are distinct, right? The buying is distinct and has you know a certain set of goals and steps and hurdles it has to overcome. And the selling has its own and they have to mesh. And where they don't mesh generally is where you find friction points. So the obvious one is... I don't believe I have a problem, right? So even entering into the buying cycle, and that would be a friction from the seller side. I'm sorry, I should have said that. From the seller's side, right? We've got to get people into the buying cycle, but they don't even think they have a problem, right? So how do we make them know that they have a problem, which is a weird mindset in my mind. But that is generally kind of the first friction is problem definition and understanding the problem, what causes the problem, why this organization has the problem. Because if you can't agree that there is a problem and what the problem is, the buying cycle doesn't even really start. Or if it starts, it may not be going down 
the path to your solution. So that's one. And lots of firms focus on demand gen and problem stuff, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Let's assume I know I have a problem. I have a pain. The next step would be, you know, exploration of what are the different solutions. And this is where content marketing was supposed to solve the problem when it actually, I think, it exacerbated it. And the friction here looks like which provider offers me the best solution. And there's so much information to sort through that buyers, you know, they just get paralyzed, you know, the paralysis by analysis. So there's a friction around just identifying the right solutions. And there are whole businesses built around cutting through that noise. Yeah. But that's a major, major point of fiction. We can go into a little more detail on that. But then even at choice, there's huge amounts of of friction around, well, I want to go with this firm, but their contracting process is so long and laborious that I just bail on it. I'd rather not have to go through all that stuff. I'll go find somebody that's easier to do business with. So, you know, that could be another item of friction. You know, on that front, there's a lead gen service that I've talked to a couple of times. And I remember he's an ex-agency guy. So a guy who owned a couple of agencies, scaled them and sold them, and now runs the lead gen business. And um, I was talking to him. One of the things I thought was interesting is he said, you know, Jason, I always hated it when I was in the agency business and someone was trying to sell me on something and they wanted me to part with a whole bunch of money before I had any proof of concept of what we were doing. And um, <laughs> Yeah, just and, boom, here's your solution. And, and, he, and he said, you know, so when I built this business, one of my goals was to take that out of the way. And so he's like, we just start. I'm going to build a list and show you the list and, and you can tell me what you think of it. It's just really fascinating. He was trying to take that friction out of the buying cycle, just saying, well, was just remove it and not make that be a friction point. So, but anyway, I thought that was really a really interesting approach because you know he's he's trying to remove logical friction that people have at that point of choice. And the thing that puts them into analysis paralysis: well, is this really going to work? Is it, you know, are they going to be able to find what I'm looking for? All those things. And he just says, well, we're just going to give you an example, a, a proof of concept, uh, right now before you pay me anything, which is is an interesting approach. And that's an excellent example. It is of just saying, what keeps people from moving to the next step? Well, they don't believe us. Okay, well, what could we do to help them, not get them, to help them understand what it is we do and have confidence in it? Here's the thing about friction. There's two ways of looking at both sides of the friction. But from a buyer's perspective, there's friction around those typical stages of the buyer's journey for the category. So, you know, if I define my problem as X and I'm going to go out and look for a solution for X, there are general friction areas across all vendors and almost all solutions. So to me, that is, you know, a general business opportunity for firms to look at. But then there are firm-specific friction areas that get in the way of a buyer buying your specific solution because other vendors don't share that same, same issue. So it's important to be able to delineate between those two. Most firms, I don't think, look at those levels. They pick primarily their experience of their own selling and their own buyers. And, and as you always say, 
you know, that's just too small a sample. It's just too small a sample to define friction areas and opportunity. And then they also, they also, I think, look at it across the entire market and not their ideal client because the market segments will value, value differently. Therefore, they are going to have different types of friction as well. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. What I think is interesting about what you're talking about is conceptually, I think we sort of get this, but we don't necessarily codify it or talk about it inside of firms that often. Or I say a lot of firms just don't. And you think about you have certain segments you work in and you constantly get pushback on certain things and you start to kind of pull away from that pushback and just say, well, that's not a sector that's good for us rather than saying, well, okay, that's that's a point of friction. How do we overcome that point of friction to make it easier for that client to hire us versus see it as a, as a roadblock and a reason to exit those relationships? And I think maybe that's some of what you're leaning into here is that, you know, the friction is a point of opportunity, not a point of failure. Oh, spot on, Jason. What a great way to articulate that because it absolutely is. Because you have the opportunity to say, hmm, could we do something better? Could we do something different? Is this the right client for us? Are other sellers having this problem? If we were to solve this problem before one of our competitors, would that allow us some kind of first mover advantage and be able to to drive more revenue, definitely in the short term? And there's just a lot of different ways of, of looking at it because it really is a feedback mechanism on your ideal client and your solutions. It absolutely is. Before we run out of time, I want to make a pivot. And the pivot I want to make is my sense is that the sellers inside of a firm probably know these points of friction. They probably have a sense of where they are or they they know specifically where they are. The marketers and the practice leaders, if they're not facing clients from a sales capacity anymore, which most of them are, but some of them aren't, may not as have it as well. How do you identify the points of friction. What's what's a process that you can use either to identify or to codify? Because my sense is what happens is that a seller, they bump into this all the time, but they don't necessarily extrapolate up that what they're seeing over here is the same thing they're seeing over there. And that's the same point of friction. They just see it as individual deals that didn't work out for one reason or another. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think the best ones do, and they work back up the chain to try to address them. The worst ones don't. They blame marketing or they blame the product or they blame something else. And to me, that is that opportunity when your top performer comes back and says, if we change this or if we did that, we could probably do better. Or if somebody comes back and says, you know, we suck because our competition does this and we don't do that. That's an opportunity to fix specific friction areas and smart marketing and and sales and delivery teams take advantage of those. Most don't do that. 
And the thing is, when there's that disconnect, you don't get scale, right? If you're relying on a super salesperson to finesse everything, then they're not going to be as productive as possible. Those, the ways of addressing that friction and eliminating the friction gives you scale. And in codifying them, it, it allows you to, you know, educate all the people selling the solution and, and it, it just, it allows to speed everything up as well. My, my mind is just racing at all the examples <laughs> in the past where people don't do that because they're not talking to one another. They're not thinking about the interdependencies that really could make everybody more effective. And this is the biggest complaint. And it's how we set up this, this podcast. So people focus on Big B branding. Right. And the marketers complain that the salespeople don't use their big B branding thought leadership to drive business. And the salespeople say, well, your big B branding studies aren't applicable to my client. It takes too much work to get it down to a point where it's even relevant to start a conversation with them, which is from a sales perspective is all they want to do. I just want to get somebody's attention and start a conversation. And they can't start a conversation because they're running in some friction point that's not being addressed. So really, kind of getting to closing thoughts here, this is really interesting, a bit of a bit of a mind twister, but identifying friction in the sale starts by identifying friction in the organization. <laughs> and that friction often is between sales and marketing. And the line. Okay. And the line, because everybody's blaming somebody else. So let's Martin. leave listeners with one sort of concrete thought on how you break down some of those silos, because I think those silos are real and, and, and they're not unique to professional services. They're everywhere. How do you bridge that inside the firm? You know, just, just give one concrete example. I'm sure we could have a whole episode on that, but, but yeah. what's, a, what's a specific thought that you have to kind of help overcome that? You did it again. Did I stump you? No. That's not just, that hard. Just no. What's <laughs> what's the how, how do you achieve world peace? The conversation has to change, and firms need a vision, a consistent nomenclature around the buyer's journey and friction. And you have to agree on that there is a buyer's journey, and that there are hurdles in the middle of it for any number of reasons. For us and our structural constraints, our cultural constraints, because of competitive actions, or, and this is more often than not the problem, the complexity of the B2B sale in general and the buying committee dynamics in companies specifically. So, and again, this is why ideal client is so important. You try to find that company with the same worldview as you. So you're not selling them both on the problem and the worldview around the problem. They're already there. Now you're starting to ask more specific questions or more specifically answer specific questions that they have. And those questions are generally indicators of friction. So, and this kind of goes back to our, what's the purpose of an IC agenda, right? So you have demand creation on, on one part of the helix and you have supply creation on the bottom helix. They're intertwined. And what firms need to do is start looking at stage by stage, where's the friction? And the friction is going to come around, you know, kind of three simple areas. If you want to be client-centric, this is 
your IC should be uncovering these areas in detail. At each stage around which problem, what is a client feeling? What are they experiencing? This gets to maesters, how clients choose, feelings. You have to think through the feelings because so much of the friction is going to be around fear, risk-taking, reputation inside a firm, exposing shortcomings. And, and, and you know, admitting you have a problem means you, you didn't measure up and you have to go out and get help. And you need to understand that's a huge part of friction. So feeling. The second is we're rational beings. What are the buyers thinking about the problem and the solution? Because they're bringing a perspective to it. And this is why Having a, an ideal client that shares your worldview is really important because they have a certain way of thinking about the problem and you need to articulate a clear point of view to align with that. So you need to understand what they're thinking about. And there's a series of questions that I see should be delving into around that. And then this one is, is really relevant to sales and marketing. What is the client or prospect doing because those feelings and that thinking is going to lead to some behavior and some channel to start answering those questions. And this is why IC should be looking at, you know, problem definition and the competitive set and where people are acquiring their information, who they trust, who they don't trust, and then pulling those together to understand where you're doing well, you're not doing well, and you can eliminate friction in that way. So feeling, thinking, and doing. But most importantly, I think it's about understanding what the client's success measure is at each one of those stages. And how do you know that they achieve that success measure and feel good enough to move to the next stage? Oftentimes we think they have what they need and they should be moving to the next stage, but we don't. Yeah, I really like that framework for friction, this notion of those three things. And I think what's interesting about it is that I would say that most intellectual capital, most thought leadership, most firms tremendously overweight the thinking on that three-legged stool. Mm -hmm. That's where all the time and energy goes is how do we outthink this problem? How do we think of a better way to solve for it? But neuroscience tells us that decision-making is made at a feeling level. And we also know that thought leadership at its core is often more about getting clients to get out of bad habits and into good habits, getting them to stop doing what they're doing a certain way. And that's not a thinking problem. It's a doing problem. And so I think you have a really nice framework there for kind of drilling down inside of the, the points of friction and then using that as a, as a model for how you might approach thought leadership. So on that note, it's time to go. <laughs> So we just got started. I know. I know. So <laughs> now we are going to, in the, in the next episode, actually, I, my hypothesis is this, this next episode will be the last episode in this intellectual capital series, although I could be proved wrong. But I think on this next one, and you pointed it out, we really should just share some good examples. Uh, and it will be sort of just, here's examples of firms that have very effective intellectual capital strategies as exhibited by what they're taking into the marketplace. And I think we've done a good job of framing out what that means, you know, for anyone who listened through these three or four episodes, what does that mean? And, and so seeing examples or hearing examples in action maybe would be a, a great way to go about it. So that's what's on tap. 
And we'll decide from there if we have to keep working this intellectual capital angle a few more episodes or not. Yeah, that's what it's all about. All right, man. Have a great week. See you, buddy. See you. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher.